This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. So today we're asking the question, why does God hide while people suffer? If God is good, then why does he allow evil and why does he seem to be so absent or removed? So that's the question we want to engage with. Let me go ahead and say a word of prayer and then we can jump right in. Father God, as we bow our heads before you, uh, we do so with solemnness, recognizing the reality of evil, the incredible suffering that people all over the world are are experiencing right now. And so, Father, we just pray that we might come to this topic with sensitivity, with clarity, that um, you might just help us better understand yourself and your goodness in light of the incredible suffering of the world. Might we walk away today with a message of hope and healing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to give a statement of the problem of evil. There's a classical version of it that dates back to the philosopher Epicurus from the 3rd century BC. And he framed it like this. He asked, "If God is, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. He is evil. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God if he is neither willing nor able to prevent evil? And so what he's doing here is he's presenting a dilemma. He's saying that you want to affirm that God is all good, he's omnibenevolent. You want to affirm that he's all powerful, that he's omnipotent. You want to affirm that he's all knowing, that he's omniscient. But if that is the case then how is it possible that we have evil in the world today? What it's trying to drive you to is the conclusion that, well, God must not be this way. Either he's not loving, or he's not all-powerful, or maybe he's not all-knowing, or he's, he's just not willing to prevent evil. Or, more commonly today, maybe there just isn't a God at all. So for many people, the problem of evil is a defeater for belief in God. Nietzsche observed that this had happened. The German philosopher Nietzsche commented that God is dead. And what he's doing there is he's not killing God. He's he's saying that society has rejected God. He's he's noting a move that post-enlightenment, we've been moving away from the need for God. And he says, look, God is dead. That's how he summarizes the state of society. But he goes on to recognize that this declaring the death of God would have consequences. In particular, Nietzsche notes that when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls out the right to Christian morality from under one's feet. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. Nothing remains in one's hands. This language of Christianity is a system that sounds familiar. Ellen White said this when she was talking about Christ. She said Christ is the center and circumference of all truth, in him is the complete system of truth. And so if you break Christianity by removing belief in God, then you also lose Christian morality. We talked about this in our last presentation, how our conviction that people are made in the image of God is a foundation for understanding that people deserve dignity, that they have particular rights. And so if you remove that foundation of God, 
then you lose that moral system. And so what Nietzsche anticipated was an era of nihilism. What nihilism means is an era without good, without evil, without purpose. And we can kind of see Nietzsche's dream come true, his vision come true. In particular, throughout the 20th century, we can see this come true in the First and Second World Wars, but we can also see it come true in modern statements of atheism. For instance, Richard Dawkins puts it this way. He says, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He says there's no ultimate good or evil. There's no ultimate purpose. Now, of course, he's going to want to recover these things. You can't live life without notions of good and evil, right and wrong, correct? And so what I want to do is hear from you, what are a couple of the proposals that you have heard offered for a foundation for morality, how we can ground the idea of good and evil without God? So here we go. Yeah, how have you heard? What's a way that we can ground the ideas of good and evil without God? Let Andrew answer that. Uh, Well, they think through logic. Okay, very good. So Andrew proposes, he says, well, some say that logic is a means of arriving at uh, some understanding of what is good and what is evil. Uh, We can pass the mic on to someone else. But uh, that's... Uh, the, the weakness here, though, is what does logic allow you to do? The power of logic is it can move you from some axioms to logical deductions of those axioms, right? But if the axioms you began with aren't particularly good, then you're not going to end up with any kind of moral claim. Uh, logic doesn't produce moral insight. All it does is it gives you a line of logical deduction, right? So logic in itself has no power to, to ground good or evil, it can simply unpack the significance of a statement. So someone else, give me, give me another candidate. How might we ground morality without God? What, what are some of the ways we've heard? We have a hand over here. Once Nietzsche declared God is dead, he said that we give, we've lost Christian morality, so now we need a new way to ground it. One thing that I've heard a lot is consequentialism. So basically, they're trying to look at, trying to make judgments about good and evil based on the consequences or the outcomes of various things. Very good. So one form of this is utilitarianism, in which you do a moral calculus, and you try and decide, does this action benefit the overall good or not? Does it maximize overall happiness or, or some other factor? There's two difficulties with utilitarianism. The first is it asks you to do a moral calculus that's impossible to carry out, because we don't have perfect knowledge of our actions. Only an omniscient being would actually be able to do this calculus. But the second problem is, again, it's assuming that we know what good and evil is. It says, okay, only do those things that bring about good results or evil results. But we're trying to ground good and evil. We're asking, what's the foundation for knowing what is good and what is evil? So it's kind of begging the question. It hasn't actually established it. So someone else, how might we ground good and evil? What are some proposals you've heard apart from God? Now here's a hand. Was up here, there was that one? Okay, here we go, here we go. Yeah? Um, if you look at, like, from the beginning of uh, humanity to, like, whatever, whatever the end is, the average happiness level of humanity, that's, like, what we should be striving for. 
We should strive for the average. Yeah, the average. Like, not above average. No, no, like I'm saying like the, the actions and situations that you put yourself in that will make you on average the happiest. So uh, like the humanity. Like that's I one of my roommates argued that point with me. Okay. Yeah. So what do you do about someone who's like a sadist? Someone who takes pleasure in the suffering of others? Yeah. Oh, so you want to bring happiness to the maximum number of people. So this is like utilitarianism, that you want to maximize overall happiness. Okay. And there's still the problem of how we know what actions actually do that. But then there's also the problem of, of, well, why is happiness the good? Why is that the goal that we're after? What justifies that as being the, 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 the basis of what is good? And you can probably think in life, there's lots of times where the, the good thing doesn't maybe necessarily correspond with that which is happy. Maybe it corresponds with incredible sacrifice. Maybe it corresponds with an incredible um, trial, right? But we think it's worthy to go through that trial because of the fact that it is good. So justice and happiness don't seem to be the exact same idea. Someone else, though. I, I see some hands back here. Um, let's see where we can get to. A few more ideas of, of how can we ground goodness without God. Um, I don't know if it necessarily completely cuts out God, yep. but it's the concept of karma. So ah. if you do something nice, something nice will happen to you. And so then that's the reason to be a good person. Do you think that's actually a good reason to be good? Uh, personally, no, because yeah. doing good things doesn't actually mean good things are going to happen to you. Well, so, so first of all, it's not always true. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's just the concept we, we of some people. We have evidence that all the time people do good and they end up seemingly not with good results. And also it seems kind of selfish. Right? Like, like, it seems like, like morality is calling us to live something a little higher than just doing what is in your ultimate best interest. Yeah. Right? Okay, let's do one or two more. Trying to find a foundation for good and evil. We just want to think about this. The difficulty of grounding good or evil apart from God. Yeah. Something that pops up a lot in the West is that there are obvious moral goods and society ter- determines what the moral good is. So what is best for society, and it's kind of similar to what people have said before, but society <laughs> determines what is best, and so we should do that ob- th- with the things that are obviously good. So, so I see two different things here. One is you're saying that it's obviously good, and the other you're saying society determines it. So those are slightly different positions, right? Uh, well, on the first hand, obviously good. Well, you go back 300 years, and there are behaviors and practices people did then that we would now condemn, and so I'm not sure if it always is ultimately so obvious. But, but second of all, this idea that society can collectively decide what is good. If that's our definition of what is good, the thing which society determines to be good, then it makes it impossible for any society to experience moral growth or progress. Because it, it's whatever the society decides is good is good. But we can look back and we can see examples of societies that did things that we want to be able to condemn, right? Even if a society collectively agreed upon the practice of slavery or upon some other abhorrent practice, that doesn't make it good, right? We want to be able to condemn those actions of society. We believe that goodness and evil, good and evil transcend what a society may come to agree upon. That's how we can judge societies and, and see the progress or decline of societies. One more over here. Uh, maybe two more. Slip them in. We're trying to just think about good and evil. Yeah. Sorry, actually... Can I ask a question based on what you just said? Please. So how does that say that that is wrong? So if, 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 we, yeah. if we can say, yeah, uh, the Romans had slavery, yep. they didn't think slavery was wrong, yep. it was part of their society, it yep. was fine, it worked out, yep. why is that wrong? Why is that wrong? Yes. Well, all I'm um, arguing right now 
is that if you try to ground good and evil in what a society agrees upon, yeah. it seems to be deficient according to our collective understanding of what is good and evil. Because we have a sense that societies can come morally short, right? And if you simply define good and evil as whatever society agrees upon, then we're no longer able to say that this society has progressed or this society has declined or that we can no longer even condemn the actions of a society. Even, even if the progression of a society is based on their technolo- technological advancements? So what does technology have to do with morality? And nothing except the fact yeah. that you don't have to have morality to still have technological advancements. And yeah. You can base a society's um, growth no, no, and progress, moral progress off, off of... moral progress. I'm saying that w- when we look at American history and we look at how we emancipated the slaves, how we had the civil rights movement, how we did these various acts, we say this was a moral progress, that we are better people today than we were then, right? But in order to say that, there must be some standard by which we're judging the society. We're not simply saying whatever society agrees to is right, because the society was wrong in those cases, right? And so we have some sense that morality should transcend the collective agreement of any society because we want to be able to judge societies. Okay, one last comment. One thing uh, that I, uh, well, I read not the whole book, but partly through um, Sam Harris's Moral Landscape. Good. And he uh, Good. argues that science could be the ground for uh, yep. an objective morality. Um, given that the least amount of suffering for any creatures would be yep. the most preferable or the most moral yep. path. Yep, 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 yep. So. So Einstein responds to this. Of course, Einstein was not responding to Sam Harris. He was before. But, but Einstein puts it this way. He says, we can talk about the ethical foundation of science. We can talk about how we need ethics in order to do good science. But he says, but you cannot talk about the scientific foundation of ethics. And so, so he would push back and he would say, no, actually, ethics is not something we get from science. Why not? Because all Sam Harris does in this book is he says, well, you want to minimize human suffering. And if you want to minimize human suffering, here are some ways we might try and do it. But he's never able to establish that human suffering is actually evil. Right? Like, like, what's the ground to establish why human suffering is evil? Why do you want to optimize human flourishing? And what is human flourishing? Why not instead optimize the flourishing of dogs or some other species, right? So he doesn't actually have a foundation for that. I, this comes out of evolutionary ethics. And so there's this idea that through evolution, through, through us living in, in developing in communities, we, we learn things like altruism, we learn these various social behaviors, and we learn them because they help our species to flourish. But if that's your understanding of ethics, if you try and ground ethics on an evolutionary basis, there's a problem. If we rewind the story of human history from an entirely naturalistic perspective, say you, you embrace this naturalistic narrative that we evolved to our current state, if you to rewind the story and run it again you would expect humans to come out a little bit different. Maybe we would have four fingers instead of five, right? Some of these things are just accidents of the evolutionary timeline, and it could have run differently. But in the same way, you would expect to end up with a different morality, perhaps one where it's okay to abuse children for fun or whatever it may be. Maybe in this evolutionary timeline, that's what would help the species flourish. But we still want to be able to rebel against that and say, no, independent of what biological instincts one may have, independent of how it may be advantageous to your group fitness, 
it's still going to be wrong for you to abuse children. So we have some notion of good and evil that goes beyond biology, that goes beyond social pressures, that goes beyond any of these other things. It's a deep notion of what is good and what is evil. And I believe what we see happening here with Nietzsche and Dawkins and others is that when we throw our God, we lose the ability to ground good and evil. And so what I want us to do is go back to the problem of evil, this Epicurean problem, and try and find a different resolution. Instead of throwing out God, let's see if we can find some other resolution to the problem he posed. So let's take the problem again, make it more precise. The logical problem of evil states that the following four facts are inconsistent. One, that God is omniscient. Two, that he is omnipotent. Three, that he's omnibenevolent. And four, that evil exists. It says there's a contradiction between God being all-knowing and all-powerful and all-loving and evil existing. That's the claim. How might you respond to that claim? Can we get the mic here? Did I? Right here. We're trying to respond to this claim. How might you respond to the claim that these four realities are inconsistent? Um, I mean, if I'm going to act as evil and, and God allows me to mm-hmm. through my own self-determination, um, then, then I am able to act evil and he wouldn't and those four wouldn't uh, account for those. Okay, fantastic. I think what you're beginning to highlight is that this does not account for the possibility that God may have morally sufficient reasons to allow evil. That God could be all good, all powerful, all knowing, but he might still have some morally sufficient reason to allow evil to exist. For instance... Or maybe I'll just say, in order to carry this argument, what the atheist has to show is that, in fact, God does not have a morally sufficient reason. That there's no possible morally sufficient reason for God to have to allow the existence of evil. That's the only way for the logical problem of evil to persist. And that's an impossible burden of proof. How could the atheist possibly show that God has no possible morally sufficient reason? It would require him to know the mind of God, right? So there's no logical contradiction here. Yet still, there's an experiential problem where even if, if that's the case, you might be begging the question then, well, what is the morally sufficient reason? Why does God allow it? You don't have to know it to resolve the logical problem, but experientially we may want to know what is the, the reason that God permits evil to exist. The philosopher Avon Platinga engages with this question, and he suggests the following morally sufficient reason. He says, God's creation of persons with morally sufficient, significant free will, is something of tremendous value. This, this is what you're saying, that, that you being an agent who's able to make choices is something that God really values. But God could not eliminate much of the evil and suffering in this world without eliminating the greater good of having created persons with free will, with whom he could have relationships and who are able to love one another and to do good deeds. He's pointing out that, that for God, his great desire to have morally free agents with whom he could enter into relationship is a sufficient reason for him to allow evil. Because for him to eliminate evil, he would have to eliminate their freedom, which would eliminate the possibility of, of relationship with him. Ellen White puts it in a similar way. God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no, play, he takes no pleasure in a slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hand should love him because he is worthy of love. He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. And so we see that God's great goal is 
beings who can come into loving relationship with him. But that requires freedom. And him creating beings that are morally free means that there's the risk or the danger that they will make morally poor choices, that they will choose evil instead of good, and hence the possibility of moral evil and the reality of moral evil in our world. Now I want to pause for any comments or questions or objections. How might someone object to this case? We're saying the reason that God allows evil is because he desires to free beings who can enter into relationship with him and that allows them to be morally free. How might someone object to it? Yeah. The one I always get when this conversation comes up is not everything that happens that's bad is because of someone like someone's fault for example when children get cancer or when people natural disasters or someone who's survived storms and torments gets i don't know diabetes or something and dies from that like bad things happen and it's not always someone else's fault that's beautiful so you're raising here the problem of natural evil Things like hurricanes or cancer, as you pointed out, or disease or whatever it may be, that these do not seem to be the direct corollary of someone's choice. And if we said that evil is the result of free creatures' moral choices, then how do we account for natural evil? How might you respond to that? I want us to think about this. We're thinking through possible objections and how to respond to them. Let me see if someone hasn't. Yeah, right here. Let's give this person a chance. How might we respond to the problem of natural evil that we have pointed out? Well, I out? think we have to look at it through the lens of the great controversy. Okay. There was a guy who understood that we could live without a God and establish our own law. So we decide what is good and what is evil. And now we are looking at the results in our planet. So that would be what I think. So you're saying that you look around us, it looks like we're in a roar zone, and the reason for that is we actually are in some kind of controversy, and that the moral choices of agents in this controversies have extended to the world as a whole. The language of, of Romans 8 is the world is, is in corruption crying out, right? And so you can see this, the, the moral agents, be them demonic forces, be it the moral choices of Adam and Eve, how they extended to creation, that our choices had an influence on the world around us. And we can see that even in, in a modern contemporary sense, right? You can see how some of our poor choices have led to climate change and other factors that have intensified some of these natural disasters, or how irresponsible stewardship of the environment can lead to things such as forest fires and other natural disasters. So we can even trace many disease and natural uh, disasters to things like human greed or corruption. But on a macro sense, we're saying that that's also true, not, not just in local uh, contemporary issues, but globally, on a macro sense, free agents, our choices, have thrown the world as a whole into chaos. Very good. Anyone else want to want to add a response to natural evil or another possible objection that may come up to this free will response that God allows evil because he values our free will so much? Yeah, right here. Just uh, This is more of a question, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, not a, it's not a being that I guess we consider that has a free will. But, like, I, w- I was watching a documentary on bee, they bees. And the <laughs> bees, like, first of all, it went, into a, it went into, like, a mouse house. And it basically fought the mouse to gain access, to become the owner of that house. It started the beehive. Yeah. At the end of the year, the, the, um, the other bees killed this. Uh, it was a uh, bumblebee, right? The other bees killed the queen, yeah. right? That was kind of weird. The queen was the one that survived the winter. But I don't... We can't really call that evil, right? I mean, that's not evil, right? That's just the, that's the fallen. Well, nature. certainly, when yeah. we look in, cre- in, in nature, maybe bees or parasites yeah. 
or some other animals, you look at it and they, they do some pretty vicious things, right? Be it predatorial behavior or just be it a parasite infecting a host and killing the host so that it might live. And that does seem to be some form of natural evil, right? It seems to be, hey, why would God make the world that way? And, and so that, the answer there would be, well, the world has fallen. Now, this is not God's original good design that has been tainted. That's right. Yeah. Any other possible objections to this free will defense or comments about natural evil or any other aspects about it before we move on? You're right here in the back. Let's, let's get a hand in the back. <clears throat> okay, I'll get back um, to you. I guess just a comment about evil in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess we fall into the pitfall of a lot of people asking, well, why does God allow these things? And that yeah. just stems from the issue that they may not know that God is not the source of evil. Very good. And that it's Satan who's the one that brings those things upon us. And it's God that allows these things in order for us to kind of like our obstacles to refine us and to mm-hmm. help us better understand why he wants us to, why he, why his world is the way it is, why he's a God of order and why he's a God of justice. And in the end, that's the main issue is that we don't know where it stems from. Well, we know, but those people that don't study the Yeah, Bible very good. So we may need to clarify that in the Christian understanding, God is not the source or the origin of evil, that there is an enemy. So God may allow it, maybe for some greater good in, in the short run, or an ultimate greater good if God values our freedom so much. But, but God himself is not the author of evil. Fantastic. Let's get one or two more hands in. Um, whichever, yeah, I'll let Andrew be the judge. Um, I, have a, I have a question. Yeah, great. Um, we as Christians see selfishness as evil, correct? Uh-huh. Okay, so... God created humans for his enjoyment, and one could argue that he came and saved us because he wanted us for his enjoyment, which, is, which could be seen as a selfish act. Uh-huh. So who are we as people to say that selfishness is evil if you know, God did a selfish act? Ah, this is a fantastic objection. So you're pointing out that God appears to be selfish, Right? The, we were saying that how can God be omnibenevolent? And you're saying, well, well, God himself appears to be selfish because he created humanity for his good pleasure, right? He, so, so isn't that a selfish act? Someone respond to that? Is God selfish for creating us and redeeming us for his glory? Is that a selfish thing? Let's get his hand right here. Well, I don't know about... Is this... Y'all can hear me, right? Um, I don't know about the creating us if that's selfish. I don't believe it's necessarily selfish uh-huh. to want to create something that has the ability to have free choice. To be selfish, you would have to like hurdle us and keep us in like like cattle on a farm mm. instead of like getting a cow and setting it free in the fields. Mm-hmm. I suppose if you kept it in a farm, that would be selfish. But as for Jesus coming back and dying for us and all that he's done i wouldn't say our god is a selfish god but more so a jealous god and he says Mm. that he's jealous i don't know where he says that Mm. i think it's an exodus Mm. but he does say he's a jealous god Mm. and i think that when you're all powerful all knowing the beginning and the end you have the right to be jealous beautiful Uh, so one one two quick things i'll just say about this this question in the last session, we looked at God creating humanity in his image. And we saw that the text taught that God created humanity in his image so that we could share in the kinds of things that God was doing. 
that we could share in creation by going out and filling and multiplying the earth, so that we could share in governing the earth. So God created humanity in his image so that we could share with him in, in governing and in creating and participating in extending creation. We then contrast that with accounts such as the Babylonian creation account, where it says that humanity was made to serve the gods. So not to share in ruling or extending creation, but simply to be the servants. And so we saw a radical difference between the Genesis creation account of God creating humanity to, to participate in this noble purpose of, of having dominion and, and exercising dominion with that of the Babylonian account where humanity was simply made of servants. So I think that that begins to show us the heart of God there. That God didn't simply want us to, to serve him as some kind of slavish beings, but actually wanted us to be able to participate in relationship with him. So I think that begins to get to the selfishness. But then when you get to the question of Jesus, calling the selfish, what does he say? Greater love no, no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then he goes and he, he demonstrates this love. Wow, like, like, like that is not selfishness. That is God saying, I value relationship with you more than life itself. Right? That, that seems like the complete opposite of selfish. But then the last thing I'll say is the reason selfishness is bad is because it's misdirected love. It's love that's pointed inward at ourselves rather than love that's pointed outward towards others. And when we look at the love that exists in the Godhead, there's, there's an inward love that exists between the members of the Godhead, that the Father loves the Son who loves the Spirit, but there's also an outward love to all of humanity. And I believe the biblical teaching here is God created in order to extend that love outwards. He wanted creatures that he could love outwards and participate in love with. But let me go ahead and let you respond, because I think you have some good thoughts on this. And then we need to move on. Um, One could also argue that um, the only reason Jesus decided to come down and save Uh us was because of the rebellion in heaven. Uh Um, Satan rebelled against God, and... He proposed an alternative form of government um, where everybody could do whatever they wanted. And one could argue that the reason that Jesus said, okay, we'll go and save them was so that he could continue to rule the universe. Oh, if he just wanted to rule the universe, it would be easy. Snap his fingers. Ellen White has this image in The Great Controversy where she says that God could have destroyed Satan as easily as we pick up and throw a pebble. Right? He's omnipotent. If he just wants control, snap, he's gone. You know what? He has foreknowledge. God could have looked down in history, foreseen Lucifer's rebellion, and said, I'm not going to deal with that mess. I'm never even going to create the guy, right? I'm just going to make Gabriel instead, promote him. I don't need any Lucifer, and avoid the mess altogether. And nobody would have known, because it was just God and his foreknowledge. Only God would have known. And yet, God is so dedicated to the freedom of his creatures He knew that if he did that, if he prevented to create a being that would rebel against him, it would be a violation of that being's choice. So even before creating Lucifer, he says, I'm going to respect that future choice of his. Even if no one knew, only God would know that he didn't create him. Only God would know he avoided that emergency. But God was not willing to have that contradiction with himself because he values freedom so much. Yeah, one more comment. But if you go by that line of reasoning, isn't sin inevitable since... Like the mm-hmm. sin is inevitable since everyone has the free choice to either choose good or evil. And if God didn't create Lucifer, 
then someone else would have eventually chosen evil as a fallback. Beautiful! So he would have to then... <laughs> Why is there evil? And you're asking, is, is evil inevitable? Is it, is it necessary? And well, I have on the, on the screen a picture of Star Wars. Because may, maybe, maybe you, you're familiar with Star Wars. Maybe you're sanctified and you're not. God bless you. But, but maybe if you're familiar with Star Wars, you, you know this idea, there must always be two, right? There must always be a Jedi and a Sith. And when the light rises, so does the darkness. And the, you know, the, there must be balance in the force. And if there is good, it's just Eastern religion. If there is yin, there must be yang. Where there is good, there must be evil. Evil is necessary. Not that it's necessary, just that if there is an option, like statistically speaking, uh-huh. if you have an option for two, it's not going to be 100% good all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's always going to be an option. And if it wasn't Lucifer, then someone else in like whatever the history of heaven would have. Hold on to this because in a few minutes we need to solve evil. So it never happens again. We we need to get there. So hold on to that. But I want us to engage with this question right now of why is there evil? Because we can, we can go down this question forever. Like, like you can tell the story. Why is there evil? Oh, Adam rebelled. Why? Well, Lucifer rebelled. And, And why did he rebel? Why did he sin? Why? Answer? There can't be an answer. If you were to be able to give an answer, then it would show that evil is necessary. But it's not necessary. Notice what Ezekiel does. Ezekiel 28, describing Lucifer, he says, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Three times. Perfect, perfect, blameless. Until unrighteousness was found in you. And notice, Scripture doesn't try to give a reason for why unrighteousness was found in him. Because if you were to explain the origin of evil, it would be to justify it. The great controversy puts it this way. It is impossible to explain the origin of of sin so as to give a reason for its existence. Sin is an intruder. For his presence, no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Let me give an example. Let's say I'm throwing a New Year's party tonight in my room. Hypothetically. And suddenly, Andrew shows up. And, you know, Andrew's no fun at parties. He's annoying, he's obnoxious, talks too much, makes a mess. And so, you know, I'm like, why is Andrew here? And I keep asking, why is he here? Someone give me a reason. And then someone gives a reason. Oh, Andrew's here because, you know, Alex invited him. It's like, well, now I know why Andrew's here. And now that I know why Andrew's here, what I have to do Well, we just tolerate him. There's a reason for him to be here, so I guess we just have to tolerate him. But what if instead, as I was asking, why is Andrew here? Why is Andrew here? We found out that there is no reason for Andrew to be here. Then what could we do? Well, if there's no reason for him to be here, we can kick him out. And this is what Scripture does. It says, there was no reason for evil. It is an alien. It is an intruder. It is foreign. It does not belong here. Therefore... Let's get rid of it. And so what scripture focuses on is rather than trying to justify the presence of evil, it focuses on the plan to get rid of evil. Do we follow that? 
It doesn't say that, that here's why evil exists. Let me justify it. Let me give you some reason for it. It says, no, there is no reason. It doesn't belong. It's alien to God's creation. Here's the plan of how we're going to get rid of it. Rather than try and justify the presence of evil, Scripture focuses on God's plan to get rid of it. And Nahum has this incredible prophecy where he says, why are you plotting against the Lord? He will make a complete end of it. Trouble, rebellion will not rise up a second time. And so now we need to think about how is this possible, though? Because you were pointing out, while Lucifer rebelled in the beginning, and so how can we make sure that evil never rises up a second time, right? Like, if it rose up that first time, isn't it just a matter of time, a matter of probability, until it rises up a second time? Even if we can hit the reset button and get rid of it all, what's to prevent it from coming back again? God's ultimate end goal is a universe of created beings that continually, freely choose the good. And others come first, loving relationship with each other and God, inoculated against ever choosing sin or selfishness again. That's God's end goal. It's not just to wipe out evil. It's to make sure that evil never returns again. So when God's dealing with evil this time, he has to do so in such a way that prevents against it ever arising again. Whoa, that's a massive task, right? That's more than just transporting people from earth to heaven, right? That, that's like more than just like teaching you to like stop eating nuts between meals or something, right? Like that's, that's a really big ambitious task. So how does God do it? Hebrews puts it this way. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered... For all time. Did you catch the significance of that? When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Somehow, the sacrifice of Christ not only restores us from, from our, to our unfallen state, but it also has the power to prevent sin from ever rising again. There's a marvelous article you have to read in Signs of the Times. It's called, What Was Secured by the Death of Christ? You need to read this and reread this. It is fantastic. But in it, it unpacks the significance of the atonement. And I want you to listen to what it says. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. God made these perfect angels, blameless, blameless, perfect, blameless, perfect, and then unrighteousness was found in them. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Eden. God created a world that was good, 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 very good, and then they sinned. Human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to the Lamb of God. The plan of salvation, making manifest the justice and love of God, provides an eternal safeguard against defection in non-fallen worlds, as well as among those who shall be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Our only hope is perfect trust in the blood of Him who can save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Him. So much is going on here. It's saying, look, look, angelic perfection, it wasn't enough. They were perfect, but Lucifer still rebelled. Human perfection, not good enough. I know we want to be perfect, but it's not good enough. 
because Adam was perfect and yet he fell. What do you need? Perfect trust. Perfect trust in the Lamb of God. Because something happened in the cross where Jesus revealed a picture of God that instead of being selfish, is so self-sacrificial. A picture of God's love and justice that's so beautiful that when we see it, when we see that, wow, my rebellion causes that kind of pain to a God that is that attractive and that loving, we would never rebel again. As we come to a clear comprehension of what God has accomplished on the cross, it protects us from any form of future rebellion. We have a couple of hands up. Let's get to them. Do we have a hand over here? Same thing? Beautiful. Over right here, we have a hand. Let's get to it. Um, this is going back to the whole question of evil things. Sorry. I yep, didn't... please. Um, with the testimony we heard this afternoon, the guy who survived the Rwandan genocide, mm. um, the question that we've, that's kind of going through our minds is why, like obviously it's amazing that God saved his life. Yes. But there are hundreds of thousands of other lives which weren't saved. Yes. So when we're saying God is good, why does he pick and choose yes. who good things happen to? Yes. Well, in the one sense, he doesn't. Christ died for all, right? And our ultimate hope extends to all, that in the end, all can have life in Christ, right? So independent of what may happen in this earthly arena, right? We know that the ultimate restoration will be extended to all people. So it's not that God arbitrarily allows some to receive the good and some. In the end, all who accept Christ can receive of that good. So there's not that arbitrariness. But you can, I agree that right now, it can seem kind of arbitrary and kind of messy, right? And I think that's because there's a conflict going on right now. So God's will is not always manifest right now. Jesus teaches us to pray that the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven, precisely because God's will is not always carried out on earth. There's an enemy, there's a battle God is engaged in, and in order to allow freedom to flourish, God has limited himself in some capacities, right? He's left a lot of room to the moral arena, to our choices, and so people can make evil choices that take away the lives of innocent. There's no reason for it. It's evil. It's wicked. We don't need to justify it, right? But we can know that ultimately, God can restore all things and make it right. Yeah, hand. This is a question I've had for many years. Um, if through some miracle, the devil ceased to exist, yep. would sin continue? Yep, because I would still exist. And you would too. I didn't hear that. I would still exist. Right. And you would too. And, you know, I'm pretty sure I'd go on sinning. So in, in some sense, have we all become little devils? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, I think that's a, so, that's a, that's a fair so analysis of So getting rid of, of Satan would condition. not take care of the sin issue. Say what? Getting rid of Satan would not take care of the sin issue. It's not any male getting rid of Satan. No, not at all. I mean, all, this is God's great dilemma is, is those which he loved has been infected with sin, right? So the, this is the human condition now. This is, this is spread beyond a single actor. What Satan did is he introduced an idea. Let's, what would happen if we rebelled? What would happen if we did something contrary to God's government? And that idea spread to others, right? So it's like you can take down the head of a rebellion, but as long as there are other rebels who continue that idea, that's why God is going through this process of, of allowing us to see 
the kingdom of darkness and its principles of what it looks like when it plays out in genocide and, and these awful and what that end of it is versus his kingdom of light embodied in Christ. Okay, let's get one or two more hands and then we need to move on. Going off of, on what you said, yep. if Satan ceased to exist, there yep. would still be sin. What about the idea that it's Satan that causes us to sin? Do you think That's that... not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches Ephesians chapter 2. We do walk according to the, 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 the ways of the evil one, but also according to the course of the world and according to our own sinful desires as well. There's sin, there's selfishness, and there's Satan. I mean, these things are all causing us to, to sin. The, but it's not merely an external actor. I myself have a sinful state that leads me to sin, right? You're selfish. We're selfish. So that leads us to sin just as much as is any, you know, demonic host. Now, Satan may be behind orchestrating various things, but he's not the sole cause for our sin. We have more responsibility as well. Okay, last hand. And then we need to move on. I kind of have an answer for what you asked. Um, yep. Kind of, well, wasn't Lucifer's initial response just challenging God's authority and whether or not he is good or and right to rule. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not the cause of sin. He's just the first one that went to that territory. That's right. That's right. And, and then the idea spread. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what the entire Great Controversy is about? Whether God is good. Basically, the Great Controversy is putting God on trial, That's whether right. or not he is good or evil, and whether he is justified to rule, and, or whether sin should have a place to... Yeah, God's allowing both these kingdoms to play out their principles. His kingdom, his, his principle of love, embodying the law of love, but and, and, the, and Satan, the principle of the evil one, yeah. right? Satan challenged that on whether or not it was good. Yeah. And there was no evidence. With that challenge, God had no proof. He had no evidence to say that, oh, yes, I am good. Because if he said that, there would be no basis for them to believe because there was no evidence. So I think there was evidence. You know, the fact that God had created a host of free agents, that's strong evidence that God is a good God. Again, that but, could but it be wasn't, twisted. It wasn't the evidence of the cross which would come, right? You're right. That There was a further revelation. Paul puts it this way. He says, the mystery of God has not been revealed. That's something that was previously unknown about God. The depth of God's goodness has not been revealed in the cross. We need to keep moving, guys. But we'll, um, we'll do some more questions and comments in a second. We're saying here that God's end goal is not merely to, to recover our unfallen state, but it's actually to secure a universe of free agents that continually, fully love God and love each other and inoculate against any future rebellion. Well, that takes time. You know, sometimes this objection has been raised, like, why is Christ taking so long to return? Why is the plan of salvation taking so long to play out? But you're like, when you realize the bigness of what God's trying to accomplish, this is a cosmic plan. And cosmic plans often run on cosmic time. There's something called a cosmic year. Did you know this? So a year is how long it takes the Earth to orbit the sun. It's how long? Yeah, 365.23 days or so. That's right. But then there's a cosmic year because the solar system itself is moving throughout the Milky Way galaxy. It's trippy stuff. Here's a visualization of it. And so we're moving about. At the center of the galaxy is a massive object. We think it's a black hole. We just know it's super massive. And the solar system is orbiting around it. 
and so, so like the sun is like moving, and so as the planets move around the sun, they're also moving in space. And so you get this helix-like orbit. It's crazy stuff. But you know how long a galactic year is? Or a cosmic year? It's like 220 million years or so. Like that, that's galactic timeline. And you're like, God is playing out the planet's salvation in just a few thousand years? Why wow, he's going fast. Right? Like, like stop, you, the objection cannot be, how can, why is God taking so long? Because when you think of it on a cosmic scale, it's incredibly fast. And I think when we appreciate the bigness of what God's trying to accomplish, it's a response to that objection. We can understand. God has this cosmic purpose. He's not just trying to, to move us to heaven. He's trying to make a secure foundation for the entire universe. Right? The end of evil. Ah. Let's, um. Revelation depicts that God is going to bring evil to an end. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, sorrow, crying. There should be no more pain for the former things that passed away, Revelation 21, verse 4. And what I want to suggest is that this biblical worldview is entirely unique. When you contrast it with any other worldview, it's unique in that it actually depicts evil as coming to an end. Right? So, so the original atheist objection of, if God is good, how can he allow evil? If you respond to that by saying, well, there is no God, what are you left with? You still have evil. You still have the suffering of the world to contend with. But... How is it possibly going to come to an end? Right? There was no solution to bring it to an end. Well, okay, eventually the universe will come to a heat death and all life will die out. Well, that's not a very promising solution, right? Like, that's what you're going to give up God for? The death of all life in the universe is your hope? Right? That's not a hope, but a Christian hope. That God is actually going to bring all evil to an end. The biblical hope. Now, sometimes we've distorted this in Christianity. That, that we've messed up the doctrine of judgment. So instead of it saying that God's bringing evil to an end, some have, have framed it in such a way that God's going to make the problem of evil go on forever. He's going to continue to, to punish those and, and cause them to suffer as they exercise rebellion against him. And, and many have, have responded sourly to this, this depiction of hell. Charles Darwin, for instance, maybe didn't know this. He, he, he rebelled to this idea of, of hell. He says, I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. He started out his life as a Christian, but by the end, he had, he had moved quite far away. He says, because if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who did not believe, this would include my father and brother and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. He's like, this idea that, the, that suffering and pain are going to go on forever in hell, that's a damnable doctrine. And what do we say to Darwin? You're right. It is a damnable doctrine, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. Christopher Hitchens, he puts it like this. Nothing proves the man-made character of religion as obviously, as obviously sick as the mind that, de- that designated hell, that designed hell. That the, the, the way you know religion is just made up, some sick mind came up with is look at hell. And it's like, well, when it comes to the doctrine of hell, we agree. A sick mind is behind that. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that punishment brings evil to an end, not that it makes it last forever. So there's a final objection I want to engage with. And it's the objection of why doesn't God give more evidence? We've been talking here about, okay, God is love. This is why he allows evil. He allows his moral arena to play out. He values our free choices. But why doesn't he give more evidence? 
Some have suggested, for instance, God could arrange the stars in the sky to spell out a message at night. Yahweh is here. Believe. Right? I suppose some could still resist. They could say, well, aliens did it. Or, you know, I'm tripping on some crazy stuff. Or, you know, whatever. But, but why doesn't God make his evidence, why doesn't he make his presence so manifest, so obvious that no one can deny it? For instance, if you look at D- uh, David and how David experienced God, it was just so manifest to him. David says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my laying down. You acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in before and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful. It is high. I cannot attain it. And so for David, it was just like he had this constant awareness that God knew all of his thoughts, everything he was going to say. God had omniscience. Why doesn't God reveal his, his omniscience to, that, to everyone in, in that way? So everyone is totally convinced that, that God is just utterly aware of everything they're doing. Well, for David, he thought that this was a wonderful thing. But how would someone who had a negative perception of God view it? How would someone who, instead of thinking that God is a loving being, is, is some kind of control freak, how would they view this? Is there a hand right here? Let's get the mic to it. I think that Romans uh, 119 kind of spells this out for us, right? Um, I'll just read it here real quick. Um, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And I have a friend um, who was talking to his nephew, um, and they were having this whole debate over, you know, does God actually exist and whatnot. Yeah. And, um, And this friend of mine, he told his nephew, he's like, I know that you believe in God. And, uh, and I can prove it to you in the Bible. And he read him this verse. He's like, yeah, I guess I'm just mad at God. And he mm. admitted that he wasn't actually an atheist. He was just kind of mad at God. So um, it's like my buddy here, Alex, was saying, you know, at the end of the day, uh, free will um, still has to remain in place because God is love. It's the only definition we have of God. Yeah, so, so you're pointing out, and if you went to this morning's presentations, we saw that, like, as you look at the world around you, there's just so much compelling evidence that God exists be it the existence of the universe or the beginning of the universe or the fine-tuning of the universe or the intelligibility of the universe. We have so many reasons to believe God's existence. But then the question becomes, but why does God even allow the possibility for some to ignore that? Right? Why does God even allow some people to just be like, well, I'm going to reject that? Why does he allow people to live in a state of atheism? And I do think that there are some people who are sincere atheists. I don't think everyone is, is faking it. I think there are people who may, maybe, you know, they, they've, they've brought themselves there for whatever reasons. But I think there are people who are living in, in sincere states of atheism. But I think this is why. Because if everyone constantly knew that God knew all of their thoughts, that why that leads some to worship, it would lead others to fear God and despise Him. Right? They would say things like God's a, a, a thought dictator or like, you know, he's, a, he's like a control freak. Or, or like, listen to this. David, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. And so for David, he's like, I can't escape from your presence. This is wonderful. This is incredible. 
But if everybody had a constant awareness of God's presence, even those who were not in right relationship with God, it would not lead them to worship, right? It would lead them to think, I can't get away from this guy, right? It wouldn't lead them to love God. And I think this makes an important point. God's ultimate goal isn't that people merely believe in him. God's ultimate goal is that people enter into a loving relationship with him. And so God permits the non-belief in some because he'd rather have someone reject him than live in a fear-based relationship with him. Did you catch that? God allows atheism because God says atheism isn't the worst possible thing. The worst possible thing is if you lived in constant fear of me instead of being in a love relationship. And so I allow this time of unbelief. I'll continue to woo you and try to attract you to myself. But, but the worst possible thing would be if you were afraid instead of in proper loving relationship with me. You catch that? This is, this is a testimony. Unbelief becomes a testimony to the goodness of God. I don't know why puts it this way. This is how God woos people to himself. If we have a fear-based conception of God, how does he correct it? He doesn't do it by revelation of his power. He does it at the cross. The mystery of the cross the Great Controversy, page 652. The mystery of the cross explains all other mysteries. In the light that streams from Calvary, the attributes of God which had filled us with fear and awe appear beautiful and attractive. Mercy, tenderness, and parental love are seen to blend with holiness, justice, and power. And so those very parts of God that may have made us afraid of him are transformed by the cross to make us drawn to him. And so rather than by some cosmic display of power, rearranging the stars at night to prove or demonstrate his existence, God says, I'm going to design things such that people come to knowledge of me via the cross. Because it's at the cross we can get a right conception of who God is. So here's what atheism rejects. Atheism rejects a God who makes people suffer forever. But we believe that God knows suffering himself. God in Christ suffered on the cross. And that God is going to bring suffering to an end. Atheism rejects a God whose judgment is arbitrary, but we believe that God is fair and transparent. That's one of the most beautiful aspects of the investigative judgment, that when God judges, it's not an arbitrary way, but it's a fair and transparent way. And atheism rejects a God who is a demanding dictator and control freak, but we believe in a God who is love, desiring relationship, and freely given worship. Justin Martyr was a, one of the first Christian apologists, and he, he was responding to this charge that the early Christians were facing. A number of the Christians have been accused of atheism. Can you believe that? Because they refused to worship the emperor. They didn't participate in emperor worship. And so they were called atheists, and they rejected some of these Greek and Roman gods. And so Justin Martyr, he's like, how, how can we respond to this, this claim? He says, you know what? We are called atheists, and we confess that we are atheists. As so far as the gods of this fearful sort are concerned, but not with respect to the most true God, the father of righteousness, intemperance, and other virtues, who is free from all impurity. And so Justin Martyr says that, you know, when someone's confessing atheism, maybe we share that atheism. Because we don't share that fearful depiction of God ourselves. We reject that God. But the God we do believe in, let me tell you about him. And I believe that can be our approach. Let me tell you about a God who loves you so much he was willing to go to the cross. And not just suffer in that moment, where the cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that God has experienced since the inception of sin. You know, each one of us 
can only experience a, a finite amount of pain. C.S. Lewis makes this point well. He shows that each one of us can, can you know, we can only experience, you know, a pain scale. This is a hospital pain scale. You know, maybe, maybe you break your arm, you feel like a three or a four. Maybe you have something really serious going on, you, you feel a five or six or seven. You can only experience a finite amount of pain. But God himself is the only one who has experienced the collective pain of humanity. You catch that? That each one of us has a limited amount of pain that we experience in the problem of evil. But God himself has taken upon himself the suffering of all humanity. That's what the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of Christ, is ultimately about. He says God is intimately familiar with each of our pain. And so in the problem of evil, God is the one who has suffered the most, but it's because he loves us so much and he's willing to bear that cost. I want you to go ahead and close with a word of prayer, and then I'll open up for some Q&A if you guys have questions. God, your love is incredible. The fact that you would even make us, knowing the mess that we would be in. You could have just avoided it all. You could have made robots. You could have made creatures that would worship you out of fear or simply out of awe. But rather, you decided to demonstrate your love for us in the person of Christ. You continue to show us how you love us. We each have evidences of of how in our lives you've been guiding and leading us. Yes, we experience hardship and pain, but we know that you're alongside us in that, that you're intimately familiar with the human condition, that you yourself know what it means to experience loss. So, and we find comfort in that, Father. Father, we pray that this, this, this picture of you we have, this picture of your incredible love, you might be better equipped to share with others. Help us to drink deeply of the fountain of your love, that we may better embody it in our lives, we may better communicate it to those who do not yet know you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, we have a few minutes for some question and answer, so I'm happy to um, take a few of those. If you need to step out and use the restroom or transition to another room, that's fine as well. But we'll, um, we'll get the mic here for some questions. When we say that um, the devil was defeated at the cross, what does that mean? Because yeah. he still has power to Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's a really good question. Um, there's a number of ways in which the devil was defeated at the cross. Uh, one of them is that the last cord of sympathy between Lucifer and heaven was broken. So prior to the cross, you see scenes like in Job, where you see that he can come and he can have some assembly with the heavenly host, right? But at the cross, his true nature is fully revealed. And so the last cord of sympathy between heaven and Lucifer is cut off. That's why in Revelation 12... It says, woe to you, for the devil has been cast down. It's actually referring there not to the original casting down, but to the cross, with his, his sympathy being entirely cut off of heaven. So that's one sense. A second sense is that he was defeated, right? And that his, his defeat was assured. While it's still an ongoing war, the outcome is now fully determined. Because we know on the merits of the cross of Christ that God will bring this controversy to an end. But yes, there continues to be sin and temptation and these kinds of things. That's true. Yeah, question. <laughs> um, how would you respond to people who bring up uh, the story of Job when it comes to God's goodness and kind the fact that he allowed bad things to happen to Job and he didn't tell Job what was going on? I think it's a fantastic story. It's a wonderful story of God's goodness, right? What, what do you have in Job? So you have Lucifer coming before the, this heavenly assembly, it's because the, the sons of God were assembled. 
They seem to be some kind of representatives of God's various creation orders. He comes before them, and God says, what are you doing here? Where are you coming from? It's like, you know, what are you doing in Congress? Which state do you represent, right? And Lucifer says, I'm coming from the earth where I walk around freely. He says, the earth is mine. Because at the fall, Lucifer had assumed the dominion that Adam had lost. Lucifer claimed it as his. This devil claimed it as his. And God pushes back on that challenge. Because while the devil claimed dominion of the earth, God says, no, you don't actually have dominion. Here's how I know you don't have dominion of this territory. I still have an embassy there. Look at Job. As long as Job is there and he's faithful, it shows you don't have full dominion over the earth, and so you have no right to be here. And that's when the dialogue begins. The devil goes, well, the only reason he washes, he fears you is he's not a true love of you. It's because he enjoys the good benefits you give him. And so God allows Lucifer to remove some of those good benefits, and you have that back and forth that goes on. Now, there's the question of, well, shouldn't God have told Job all those things, right? Well, on the one hand, it makes God's case all the stronger that he doesn't tell him, because it shows that Job was willing to trust God despite not knowing those things. And that is a source of incredible comfort for each of us, because we may be going through a circumstance where we don't know the exact behind-the-scenes great controversy, you know, why the genocide example again, why did this person live and this person die? We don't understand it all. We don't know, like, the, the cosmic entities that, that are playing out here. But we can look to Job's story for inspiration. And so I imagine that in eternity, there are going to be countless people who go up to Job, and they say, hey, your testimony, your experience gave me confidence, it allowed me to persist in my own misery, and the really cool thing about Job is although he had a lot of questions, in the center of the book, he, he says, yet I know, that I, I know that I will live, I know that I will see, I, how does he put it? I know that my Redeemer remembers me. He has this, this confidence in coming Messiah, right? And at the end of Job, even though Job had been asking God these really tough questions, God said, your heart was true. That is, you were honest with me. So even though you had questions and you expressed those questions and those frustrations, you were honest. And God said, that's, that's what I value. Your heart was true. Your friends, they had all their own agendas going on, but you were true in this. And I think that says that for us, when we go through hardship, that what God really values is that we're true with him. We can express our frustration. We can express how we don't understand what's going on. We can express God can deal with that. I mean, Jesus himself cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? But then he goes on and he declares, yet it is finished. So he, he both expressed, I don't understand why, why am I forsaken, and yet I have confidence that this is accomplishing God's work. And we can do that too. We can cry out and be authentic with God. And so I think Job's testimony is a powerful one. Yeah, let's do one last question, and then um, we can start transitioning to the next one. Try and, I'll try and make it quick. Yeah. Uh, working with a friend, a good friend of mine who's atheistic, used to be Adventist, yeah. and he, he shares... You know, okay, so the motivation for me to believe is that God is good, God is love. Yep. But yet we believe that sin exists as a result of people's choice, that God respects people's choice, and that God's prioritization of freedom of choice is yep. very high. Yep, 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 very high. So then he, you know, the natural question is, so God will allow a rapist to rape 50-something women to respect that man's freedom of choice. Yep. And you say, no, 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 no. God is not the ultimate determinist, yep. the effects of sin. Yep. But now we're prioritizing because they'll say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say God holds the king's heart in his hand? And therefore, 
if God intervenes here but not over here. Isn't that hypocrisy? And, you know, it's, it just gets messy from here in trying to convince him that God is truly good. Okay, so I'm going to recommend a book rather than try and answer all that because there's a lot packed into that. But I'm going to recommend a book I recommend to everyone. It's called um, Theodicy of Love by John Peckham. Theodicy of Love. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. Theodicy just means it's a defense of God's goodness. But it's a Theodicy of Love by John Peckham. He's, um, he's out of seminary at Andrews University. And it's a fantastic a treatment that um, goes through and shows the cosmic conflict and goes into some of these um, issues of why does God allow some of these choices? Why doesn't God intervene more? These various issues that you're bringing up. And so I, I recommend it. It's a, it's a very thorough treatment. Um, really good stuff. Yeah. Just a super quick thought on that one. Because ultimately where that question goes to is, well, why didn't God prevent prevent that one well then where do you draw the line yeah. eventually the question gets to well why didn't god prevent the very first one yeah and it ultimately gets to a freedom of choice thing why doesn't god control everybody's actions yeah that's the ultimate question of that yeah i mean there is something going on here where god does intervene sometimes not other times and what john peckham develops in theodicy of love from scripture is he shows that there were some rules of engagement in this cosmic conflict and that god has allowed himself his activity to be constrained by the rules of engagement in order to um, allow freedom ultimately. But these rules of engagement might mean things like, like prayer is actually uh, has power. And that us praying allows things to come about that wouldn't otherwise because it's God respecting free choice in that way. And so God is limited by some of these rules of engagement, but that's why God's will is not ultimately manifest on earth as it is in heaven. Yet, it will be. And we have to pray for it to be accomplished on earth. But uh, it's not always in every instance. We don't always see God's will manifest as we would like it to. Yeah, so um, Theodicy of Love, I recommend that. And we'll go ahead and pause now for a few minutes, let you guys get some water stretch before we move into our last presentation. This message was recorded at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.